0: Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 67 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of the most imaginative, inventive, and enduring singer-songwriters around, Robin Hitchcock. Since his work in the 1970s with the Soft Boys, Hitchcock has been writing surreal, catchy, muscular, gentle, haunting, melodic pop rock songs. His latest album, Shuffle Mania, shows that his musical powers and youthful enthusiasm remain undiminished after all these years. Hitchcock has always been upfront about citing the impact of his musical heroes, such as John Lennon, Sid Barrett, and Bob Dylan. In a recent essay about Barrett, which we discuss here, he notes If I like a kind of music, I try to echo it as closely as I can. Whether I absorb my influences or simply continue to echo them isn't really for me to say. I'd say, He absorbs them before creating something that's wholly his own. That has been the case since the Soft Boys unveiled their unique brand of psychedelic flavored rock in Cambridge, England in the late 1970s. The Soft Boys peaked with their 1980 album, Underwater Moonlight, which includes some of Hitchcock's still most popular songs, the anthemic, I Want to Destroy You. jagged, insect-infested kingdom of love, and the post-Birds pre-REM perfect pop jangle of Queen of Eyes. On
1: and off, it's the Queen
0: of Eyes, with a carapace shell and her black-faced eyes.
1: I don't know why she never gets anywhere.
0: The Soft Boys broke up in 1981 with guitarist Kimberly Rue going on to form Katrina and the Waves. Hitchcock launched his solo career with the eclectic Black Snake Diamond Roll and continued to record albums on his own, such as I Often Dream of Trains and I.
1: Honey, have you
0: got the nerve to be Queen Elvis? And with the Egyptians, which included former softboys Andy Metcalf and Morris Windsor. The first Robin Hitchcock in the Egyptians album, 1985's Fegmania, included such staples as the man with the lightbulb head,
1: light head I turn myself on in the dark
0: my wife and my dead wife and heaven. Subsequent albums continued his blend of surreal imagery and tunefulness, and occasionally one of his songs would wind up on the radio, such as Balloon Man,
1: and Man came right up to me,
0: Madonna of the Wasps, and So You Think You're in Love.
1: So you think you're in love.
0: Later, he recorded three albums with the Venus Three, which included R.E.M.'s Peter Buck, Scott McCoy, and drummer Bill Rieflin. Out in the trees, all got me I'm in. For Shuffle Hitchcock recorded the songs and then sent them to various musicians, such as last week's carol pop guest Brendan Benson, Rue and Windsor of the Soft Boys, Pat Sansone of Wilco, and his longtime partner, Emma Swift. No matter who plays on his albums, Hitchcock sounds like Hitchcock. Age and mortality are on his mind on Shufflemania, Mania, but then again, they always are. This is the man who long ago wrote, sounds great when you're dead, after all. On the new The Man Who Loves the Rain, Hitchcock sings, Respect the
1: dead.
0: you will be joining them soon. The beautiful hymn-like album closer one day it's being scheduled envisions a day in which the human race will not be run by bullies
1: one day the color of your skin won't be the great divide. And one day you'll care how other
0: feelings... As for what's scheduled well it awaits all of us. Hitchcock and Swift spend their time between Nashville and London, which is where he was when we spoke. His conversation is a lively, deep one. Aside from getting into creativity and music making, he explores aging and what it means to remain young, which he has done in voice and spirit even as he approaches his 70th birthday in March. He discusses his collaboration with Andy Partridge of XTC and why years of back and forth have yielded just a four-song EP so far. the songwriting with Partridge work? How does Hitchcock write songs now and has his approach changed over the years? Does he seek out inspiration or does it usually come to him? Why do audiences respond more to older songs? Does music mean as much to him now as when he was younger? With Shuffle Mania following 1985's Feg Mania, does he plan to release a new Mania album every 37 years? Please enjoy this carol pop conversation with one of the greats, Robin Hitchcock. Thank you so much. So you wrote this wonderful, thoughtful birthday tribute to um, Sid Barrett the other day, which I read on Facebook. Oh, yes. I and it was that. really interesting. And and um, one, one part of it, you said, uh, I may well have identity issues. Who are any of us if we examine ourselves from the close up enough? Take somebody who no longer wants to exist, Barrett, and then add somebody who would rather be someone else, me. And you get the picture. All I know is that if I like a kind of music, I try to echo it as closely as I can. Whether I absorb my influences or simply continue to echo them isn't really for me to say. Would you say that's something that's consistent throughout your career? Or was it true at one point and maybe not as true at another point? I think it's pretty
1: consistent, actually. And it's taken me rather a long time to kind of come to terms with it. Um, But I realized that that's what I tend to do. You know, I'm pretty on the spectrum things either obsess me or they pass me by altogether. So I get very, very involved in things and I something and I do my best to mirror it or echo it or absorb it or become it. And I'm good at that. But then again, you know, musicians are kind of echolaic. Uh you know, even John Lennon, who who I've is is another character that I've absorbed and is probably a deeper influence than any other really, um, because because he's in the Beatles. So there, there were four of them. Lennon was a very good mimic. Have you heard those, you know, the tapes where he's mimicking Bob Dylan and you right. know, he does a, a great Dylan, he does a great Mick Jagger, he does a really good buddy Holly. You know, he sort of sonically becomes them. Um, and I guess that's one of the things you can do if you have an ear is capture a sound that comes from somewhere else. You know you start off trying to imitate people and you're not good enough to do it and in a way (laughs) the real you is the thing that appears between your attempt to copy something and what actually happens you know that's that's you but um you can also spend a lifetime refining it I, i don't really know all i know is that i work in a field and I produce a category of music that if you went into a record store or a virtual record store and you looked at 20 records that would include Revolver, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, The White Album, The Basement Tapes, Highway 61, and then a sort of general melange of other people like Lou Reed and all the great songwriters that were around then you know that's where i would belong that's where my sound belongs if there's anyone around in 200 years time i think i will just seem like a you know i'll be an afterthought (laughs) a postscript Uh, or as i always put it i'm the last one to hatch out (laughs) It's, it's a genre i work in i've made no attempt to
0: move it into the 80s or the 21st century or anything. There's also a great diversity to your work, though. I mean, you have like a large body of work in terms of, you know, solo albums and acoustic and electric and kind of psychedelic and kind of, you know, Aggressive and gentle and thoughtful and dreamy. And you know, Robin Hitchcock as a you know musician category covers a lot of ground, which, you know, the Beatles who were absorbing a lot of influences obviously do as well. It seems like the more sort of broad influences you have, the more that sort of goes into this kind of unique melange that becomes you, right? Well,
1: my my saying on that is
0: that the deeper your
1: roots, the broader your branches. You know, that's why people like Bob Dylan and acts like Beatles. The, The Beatles and Bob Dylan have such a universal reach because they've absorbed from so many different sources. And yeah, I know I have a variety of different sounds. I'm not simply bashing out the jangle pop. That's just sort of one slice of what I do. But I don't really think I've done anything that wouldn't fit on the White Album, really, in the course of whatever I've been doing this for 40, 45 years, almost anything I've done
0: would stylistically could have been done on the white album. Yeah. But the white album is about the broadest stylistic record by anyone ever. As you say,
1: I veer between loud and quiet. It's like a sort of windscreen wiper. You know, I go back and forth between making quiet records and making quite noisy ones. And this one, Uh, Shuffle Mania is given that it was all initially recorded by myself at home with no band has definitely got some noisy moments, you know, but it really shows that recording is an artificial process. You don't have to have a band in the studio and you probably haven't had to have a band in the
0: studio for the last 55 years, you know. By total coincidence, uh the previous episode uh, where I did an interview was with Brendan Benson. Um, oh yeah. Cause uh, he had an, he has a new album out. And I bought the blue, the lovely blue vinyl of Shuffle Mania. And I'm looking at the credits and I'm like, oh, wait a yeah. minute, the Shuffle Man is you and Brendan Benson. Um yes. and it looks like he's playing just about everything but the guitars on it. He
1: is. The, the previous album I, I did, which just self-titled. Um right which we did in Nashville, Brendan engineered and produced that, and he didn't play a note on it, you know, everything, which which I think is the right approach as a producer. Um, He was simply there listening and balancing things and suggesting things, but he wasn't playing on it. Um, So this record, you know, he wasn't involved in the production. So he came in and just played on a couple of tracks. Um, Yeah. Did everything on the shuffle man. And he did, an awful on the Sir Tommy shovel, right? He and Kimberly Rue are on that one. Well, it was but not in the same room. I assume. No, he just said, well, I wanted to try and make it like the soft boys. He put all these sort of harmonies in like the angle boys, lamp single, you know, we did hundreds of years ago. And I thought, Oh, okay. I'll ask Kimberly if he wants to play on it. So he did. So actually that was triggered by Brendan. Um, but all the voices on the Satomi Shovel um, are, are Brendan's and the drums and bass, but the guitars are Kim and me. So, you know, Brendan gets his moments in the soft boys. Yeah.
0: <laughs> For the Shuffle Man, had you recorded the song and then the drums and all that were added later? And, and it's because it still sounds like a really lively band performance, but I'm wondering the order that that happened.
1: Oh no! Every, I recorded everything myself. With I'm proud to say, no click track. I just sat there with a with a guitar, acoustic or electric, and performed the song. And then I sent it off to various people. Johnny Marr. I sent. I sent. I, it wasn't even a. I wasn't even on my little Zoom machine. I just sent him a phone recording, and then he sent me back all these stems based around the. the thing I'd sung on my phone. So I then had to get it translated. I then had to play again over the top of what he'd done, but, um, you know, he was playing drums. He kept good time. And we had also we had quite a few drummers and they all managed to, to keep in with my slightly arrhythmic playing. Um, <laughs> I'm notorious for shifting the beat from the two to the one or whatever. And I don't do it intentionally. Um, but I speed up and slow down and drop beats and all kinds of things. But they all, they're all intuitive players, you know, and they, they made it sound like a group, but they weren't one.
0: It's a really cohesive record. And then you look at the the credits and there are different people on every song and they've recorded it everywhere. I mean, did it surprise you that you could make an album like this in this way?
1: It might be because all the songs were written around the same time. You know, they were all written within eleven months, and they were all mixed by Charlie Francis in Cardiff. So they've got a kind of unified hand at the end. You know, just giving them the the composition where they are on the on the you know on the sonic horizon. What what goes north by northeast and what's full steam ahead and all of that. So. I'm a bit surprised it sounded that cohesive, but I was very pleased with that because it doesn't always happen. And I thought, well, if nothing else, this lot all really belong with each other. So I was pleased. I I thought it's, I mean, it's not a very exciting thing to say, man, it's my most cohesive album. Um, (laughs) Hitchcock at his most cohesive, you know, like- Most uh, cohesive uh, exclamation point. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I, I don't know how- how much that's one of my uh, hallmarks. But anyway, that's what we got.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, we're all getting older and the pandemic's going on and everything. And these aren't themes you haven't explored before, but there's definitely this sort of air of mortality over it with, uh, you know, and the man who loves the rain starts with respect the dead. You will be joining them soon. And, you know, one day, which is a beautiful closer of a song, uh, you know, it ends with, it's being scheduled, which I assume is, uh, you know, the end of the book of life there. Um, are these, are these things that you were thinking about, uh, in, in particular while you were creating this record?
1: They're never very far from my mind and they never have been, you know, I've always been morbidly aware of mortality. Uh, it's just that you know, your death doesn't go away. You just get closer and closer to it, but you have to make peace with your your extinction. When you're a kid, you know, being old is something that happens to other people, which I think in a way is a fair point because by the time you've traveled 60 years or so through life, um, what happened to you or what you did when you were that much younger might as well have happened to somebody else, you know? Uh, Are the memories I have now actually things that happened to me or did they happen to someone else? When I write them down, they start to look as though they could be somebody else. Um, I can read back through the story of bits of my existence and um, almost not identify with it at all. I I sort of, uh, you know, give you the same name, you've got the same DNA, but, uh, you know, are you really you're only the same you because you haven't officially died, but, you know, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, but it's hard to, it's hard to avoid that as, as time goes on. And time's been very, means good to my voice, at least, you know, I, I don't sound that old. I um, do <laughs> to today because I've got the, there's a, there's a, a great cold lying across Southern
0: England that is you know, everyone's you know, not everyone who's had it's had it for about a month. Ah. But, um, yeah. No, you sound good here, and you sound great on the record. You sound like yourself. No, I don't think... I mean, in some ways, I don't think I've changed at all. I just think that
1: the the much younger person was somebody else. But in terms of what I do musically, um, I don't really think I've... Or even with words. I, I feel I feel like I'm better at it. But then I'm not sure whether I really am any better at it. Am I a better guitarist than I was 50 years ago? I've played so much, I should be better. I hear tapes of myself playing electric guitar, and I think that's definitely better than it was in the soft boys days. You know, I actually can play better, but I don't know.
0: Whatever you um, say, the opposite could apply. <laughs> I'd interviewed Andy Partridge back in two thousand and nine, I think it was. and uh, and I was asking him about because he was saying how he keeps writing songs and writing songs. And I'm like,, well, why don't you put them out? And he's and he was sort of being like, "I don't know. I don't know if I should put them out or if they're not as good. and 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 he said, "You know maybe there's a certain number of songs you have in you, And even though I keep writing them, i've I'd, I'd already written all the good ones, and so maybe they're not there anymore like like there's a finite there's a limit to the number of good songs you can write and i don't you know i, I mean i won't yeah. analyze what was going on but do you feel like there's sort of a you know a, a point at which you you know you run out of good songs because it seems like you still have a lot of good songs
1: I, I think there could be it's possible i wrote all my best stuff 40 years ago you know i and actually um i haven't really done anything in the last 30 years or 35 years that exceeds what I did to begin with. Uh sometimes I feel that. Um the, the the thing is that the older something is, the deeper it resonates, both with you and your listeners. Um, almost all and rock and roll is now an old man's game, an old person's game, but particularly old men. You know, they're still out there, Ron Wood and Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan and um Rod Stewart and Keith Richard, you know that that Elton John, they're they're all still there. Brian Ferry, um, they're all well into the second half of their seventies, or or you know over the over the waterfall of eighty. Um, but it goes, yeah, for sure. The, the older something is, the more it resonates with both you and your listeners. So people who've been listening to me for 35 years are going to have a a feeling about my wife and my dead wife and airscape and the kingdom of love and I want to destroy you and balloon man and insanely jealous and Winchester and tropical flesh mandala and all that stuff I did as a relatively young man. Whatever I do now, it, it can't go back and press the same buttons that that does. You know, if they hear one of those songs, it it gets them further inside than listening to The Man Who Loves the Rain or, you know, The Shuffle Man or Sayonara Judge or something something more recent. My new songs might be fabulous. They might be better than my old ones, but I don't think they resonate so much with the listener or with me. And uh, that's really a perceptual thing, if you see what I mean. It's not to do with the sure. quality of the songs. So in short, it's really hard to tell. I'm, I'm really grateful that people still listen. And I'm also a, a compulsive songwriter. So um, I had a few rather blank years before I recorded Shuffle Mania. And, um, and then I, I wrote that, all those and recorded them very fast. And then the process continued. So... I've probably got another 30 or 40 songs since I mm. I recorded that which I, I, I sort of send them out on Patreon in a in a very simplified form which is great it gives me a vehicle to a reason to record a, a reasonable demo of a song and send it out And I mean, what, what I like more than anything is simply working on new songs. I I don't, I'm not that crazy about singing the old songs all the time. I'm glad that I've never been burdened with a hit because it means I don't have to play at every show. I've got like about eight or nine higher profile songs and every gig I have to do about four of them, but I don't have to do the same one every night. So I can rotate my higher profile works. (laughs) Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure if I'd written, hey, Jude, uh, playing in every night in exchange for another $500,000 wouldn't be too <laughs> much of a burden. I could probably bring myself to do it. And I think probably also, you know, with McCartney, I'm sure it's not just the money. I think he actually likes the the 50,000 loving faces in front of him more than anything else, you know, to the point where he'll stand up there and play for three hours, you know, an hour and a quarter longer than I do. And the guy's 11 years older than me, but he was still, such is the love that, that Paul feels that he can stand there. And, you know, it just gives him the, I don't know. I mean, he's a buoyant guy anyway. He's definitely, he was always buoyant. And looking back on the Beatles, you can see how he sort of, came out of it as the, the designated realist and the one who understood the value of the group and you know was, was grown up while well, all the, the others were weren't in the same way. But um God anyway that's that's Beatle a separate topic. And I'm, I'm just lucky I and I have to remind myself of that.
0: When you play is there one yeah. song that gets more response than any other or is it just kind of like a sort of a tiered thing where it's like if you play one of these songs it gets this and you know but but is there one that kind of sticks out and you're like oh i didn't i didn't think of all the songs i wrote that would be the one that everyone would respond to the most
1: no there's basically the further back i go the more people like them the exception to that is either if i play a song they haven't heard before and they like it then there's a kind of There's Surprise and Delight. Oh, it's a good, it's a new song and we like it. But it has to be fairly simple, I think, for them to get that. And I don't very often come up with a good new simple song. (laughs) Um, The other thing that actually gets the best response live is when I do a sort of guitar improvisation, sort of a la Richard Thompson. I just get the sound person to add effects to the guitar after I've finished singing. Um, there's two songs, one's the lizard off blacksmith diamond roll. And the other one is I'm only you from fake mania. So they're both really old songs. Um, but I do a kind of maybe jam away for four or five minutes at the end of it, you know, playing to the echo coming back. And so it, it gives the sound person a chance to, to have fun and, Hand things around, you know, and it gives me a chance to play against the echo. I'm, I can't be bothered with technical stuff. So I don't carry echo pedals and chorus pedals and things. That stuff just annoys me so much. Um, I sometimes I don't even plug a guitar in. I just, I'm, you know, more Jonathan Richmond than David Gilmore. I -hmm. just, I don't know. don't have the patience for it. So, um, but the sound people usually, if there's a decent desk, uh, and sometimes there's a very decent desk, um, they'll do all sorts of delightful effects. And actually, those often get the the really biggest applause. Just me jamming for four or five minutes, you know.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing you. You do some of that when you come back in the spring, since you had to put that tour off a bunch of times when you go back when you're talking about like sort of people liking the older stuff uh it's sort of an interesting dynamic because i think that there's i think you respond differently to the songs through which you discovered someone like oh that's who oh, yeah soft boys are that's who robin hitchcock is as opposed yeah. to when you already know them um it's different uh and and then there's also just the sort of like when you're younger maybe you kind of imprint in a different way than when you're You're older. I mean, do you how do you listen to music now compared to when you were younger? Are you as obsessive? Does it stick to you and you know make you go back the same way that it did, you know, decades ago? No, not at all. Unfortunately.
1: But also, I suppose in the early days I was either hearing things on the radio so they'd be repeated, or I was at school where there was a a record player, so I'd hear the same record a few times and it would have time to sink into me. I mean, I think the only record I've ever liked from the very t- first time I heard it was probably maybe the first Velvet Underground LP. I really I really got that straight away. Mm. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's just so instantly likable. Um, no, no, it doesn't mean anything like what it meant to me then. And I have to listen to stuff... Very often it's because Emma plays records or something. So I discovered Kasma Coombs through Emma and uh, started listening to um, people like Sharon Van Etten and, and Nico Case. I mean, I, I, I sort of know her anyway, but it, it takes a long time for stuff to sink in. And in the old days, I, when I was a teenager, I would listen to music and draw but I wasn't really that much of a musician. Now, I can't listen to music if I'm playing music. So if I'm by myself and there's nobody around, I'll play the guitar or the piano for hours. I I only put music on if I'm going to draw. I don't absorb as nearly as much music as I should. The last thing I heard that I thought was great was a British group called Black Midi. You ever heard of them? I've heard of them, but I don't know them. I should Um, check it out. They're obviously into Captain Beefheart, but it, it, they don't really sound like him, but they've got that same sort of manic, multi-directional creativity and that sort of intensity. And there's all sorts of stuff which is very listenable, but I don't really seek it out. It, I know it's there. I wish I'd, there was a spare me that just listened to music. I should, but I, I don't
0: know. I just get very busy playing it. Well, playing, it's a good thing to do. Do you listen to more new stuff or old stuff when you're listening to music? I listen to old
1: stuff, but I can't listen to any, you know, anything too often. So, you know, I'll play Sergeant Pepper four times a year. I'll probably play Revolver maybe eight times a year, play Blonde on Blonde three or four times a year. Or five, Emma listens to that one too. Uh, then I'll then I'll put on something, you know, some Cas McCombs or Sharon Van Etten or somebody, you know, Bowie Roxy music, psychedelic furs. I carried on listening quite a lot up into the 90s, I guess. And um I sort of trailed off around the time of Beck and the second Radiohead album. Um, I, I sort of didn't bother to keep up with it after that. So I missed Coldplay
0: and Muse. Was so that things. a function of the music or was that a function of where you were in life? Combination. Little from column A, little from column B,
1: I think. I don't know. What about you? What Do, do you still listen to Do you absorb stuff on a regular basis?
0: I've had like weird waves of stuff. Like I used to listen to obsessively to a lot of things. And and in my early days of the Tribune, I was also reviewing records. And so I would get sent stuff and I would listen to, you know, a lot of that, but I would sort of discover a group and then just go crazy and get every single, you know, I mean, like even in high school, I'd be, I'd read in the Rolling Stone record guide about Procol Harum and I'd like, Oh, there's, and I'd find them at the used record stores. And, get all the purple yeah. harem records or get all the you know velvet underground records or you know all this and uh you know soft boys i discovered right after college i think and and then i think when i had kids and got a little older and wasn't on that beat anymore i just and and i was married to someone in or, or, ironically rock radio but in the morning so she had to get up really early i wouldn't play stuff around the house as much but then during the pandemic i was home all the time and i upgraded my turntable and so I've been like buying way too many records again, but I've been trying to sort of expand my palette a little bit too, and listen to sort of more stuff that I didn't know as well. Like a lot of, a lot of late sixties, mid early to mid seventies soul and sort of funk jazz and things that I didn't really, as opposed to my wheelhouse, which was, you know, your kind of jangly rock melodic, you know, the stuff that you like. (laughs) So I feel like I've broadened it a little bit, but I still listen to the other stuff as well. But you broadened it by, but
1: going back in time, so you're listening to different genres of music that were contemporary with the ones you liked.
0: Yeah, it? some of that, and then and, and also some sort of newer stuff. But but a lot of the newer stuff I listen to, like I listen to like the Delvon Lamar Organ Trio, but they sound kind of like they really liked that you know late '60s or early '70s soul jazz sort of thing like they they like the meters and booker T, the mgs and are they current any, yeah so they're current but um all oh, right yeah I go back to that yeah so i'm trying to find i'm trying to you know listen to new stuff as well but you know here i'm i'm enjoying your new album and you've been around for a while so there you go
1: well i'm a bit of an anomaly i think as regards time because i don't really i don't attempt to defy it but in some ways it doesn't seem to affect me as it should it's an interesting thing um, well it's
0: interesting to think of you and sid barrett in that way because you know i mean early on you know because there was there was some sort of vocal i don't even want to say similarities but you know it was it was clear that you liked sid barrett and there were certain things in the guitar tone but sid barrett is just the the opposite of you in terms of someone who just flamed out and you know, was self-destructive and, uh, you know, and he had this brilliant flash, whereas you've been able to sort of, you know, sustain, you know, sort of the musicality of him over this like long career in which you get into all these other nooks and crannies that he never got to. And, and you weren't the self-destructive person. You were someone who was, you know, able to maintain a life and a career.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, he was just raw talent. As, as i've often said he was like he squeezed the whole tube out in one go whereas most people squeeze a little bit of talent out then they mix it with some turpentine and they <laughs> spread it around and then they squeeze a bit more talent out and they make a career of it you know barrett was just it was concentrate it was neat you know whether you want to use an analogy from paint or from um from lime juice or whatever you know he, he just it i think one of the reasons that it that what he did is so magical is because it was so dense it was so concentrated it was like a a lifetime's creativity squeezed into 18 months um and the rest of us take a lifetime uh i mean you know there are other people that that came and went pretty quick he's just the most extreme example you know you could also blame the zeitgeist and say wow look how many people just dried up in 1970 you know it just weren't the same again John Sebastian Donovan arguably John Lennon um Dylan definitely went fallow for a long time you know he the, the Furious inspiration he'd had evaporated for quite a long time um when it came back it wasn't quite what it had been but Dylan moves with time he never he very seldom tries to relive or recreate himself. he's very good at so he's great at being an old man, you know it sort of suits him. Nick Lowe is also very good with time. Nick makes right. no attempt to you know he's still he's still he's still a rocker and he's still got that sort of cheeky grin and and he's in pretty good shape um but he doesn't pretend to be any younger than he is, you know mccartney's had all the work and and you know f- from a from a couple of hundred feet away he still looks like beetle paul and pretty much sounds like beetle paul whereas old bob you know time is written in his voice he really except me you know he sounded like an old man when he was young so once again i'm saying the opposite of myself but um <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. When Time Out of Mind came out in '97, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of like his old man record." I'm like, "Well, no, that was '97. That was, uh, you know, 25 years ago at this point, point. Uh, and he's still he's still doing it. That was actually, you know, middle aged Bob, but he sounded like a you know, old, very wise person on that record. So, so yeah. he sounded
1: like an old, very wise person when he came out on the first record. You know, he, yeah, uh, he, he had that youthful complexion and sort of you know, cherubic look, and and he could definitely look like a kid, but actually he was old and wise at 20. Um, But I think that's, you know, some, I think sometimes that people are born a certain age, Uh, you know, he was born old. Um, Some people are just never going to grow up. I was probably born young and I've probably always stayed that way. So whatever happens to me physically, I will always have a certain kind of Boyish a long and a kind of slightly daft spring bunny approach, even if I have some kind of insight. I sit out the window, I sit out the law, I'm gonna see what the shuffle man saw. Oh yes, oh yes.
0: So Shuffle Mania, you know, 2022, Feg Mania, 1985. Yes. Have you figured like every 37 years you're going to do a Mania album? Oh, I
1: should. Let's see, I would be, uh, that would mean 37, so I'd be 106 when I did the next one. Well, you know, ages,
0: ages, ages, you know, shifting. So that'll be considered old by then. So,
1: oh, 106 is the new 97, you know? Yeah, I,
0: I exactly. if I'm still there, I'll definitely do one. Yeah. Is there actually a connection between those two records or was it just, you know, you just like the title? No,
1: there's no connection. I mean, I, I have had mania in the title. It's before it's true. No, in fact, the Mania is almost nothing like fagmania, and it doesn't have any of the same kinds of songs. But shuffle Mania is the chorus of the shuffle man. I mean, I don't know how much fagmania sums up fagmania, and I don't know why <laughs> I called it that. It, it, all fagmania really means is the eleven songs that are on that collection. There isn't really any any particular way of defining it apart from a sort of slightly autistic elation, you know, kind of giving yourself stims, um, being wired up, vibrating internally. But I, I did that. I've done that since I was three and I still do it. My father did it. Um, I just vibrate internally. I buzz myself up and then the songs appear nothing to do with drugs, just some way of holding your fingers. And, um, shuffle man well you know old people shuffling shuffling around the world but still shuffling manically shuffling the cards shuffle man who seems to be the agent of fortune the shuffle man announced himself by pretty much dictating the song to me and then taking me outside with the guitar and there I was I sang it It was originally an octave lower and I sang it to Emma and she said oh no sing it Sing it in your proper voice. You don't do it as a joke. It was originally kind of like Johnny Cash, you know. Mm. I set out the window. I set out the law. <laughs> I'm going to see what the shuffle man saw. I, you know, I shot a man in Reno, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so, but it's, it's up an octave, so it sounds more like Tombstone Blues. And then it went to Brendan and it went that way. But, you know, the shuffle man just basically deals you what appear to be a random set of cards. And somehow you have to make sense of them. And then you look back in if you can look back in 10 years' time, and it all seems absolutely inevitable. What seemed like a, a chaotic leap of circumstance actually seems like a sort of these are the inevitable footsteps. You know, this is the path um that that had to you had to tread. And that's funny how what seems like brutal chaos in the end seems like. You know the natural consequence of the way things are just depending on how you look at it look at it from look at it from now and it's chaos look at it from the past and it's just sort of oh well that was going to happen wasn't it yeah. oh. right. you know as soon as marshal hindenburg was in power you could see the nazis were going to be there oh, crystal now so a direct consequence of uh of them having to you know world war one and having to sign the surrender in the carriage at versailles you know hey ho whoops um God knows what's what's going to happen soon, which will seem inevitable. You know, at what point, um, well, you know, was was President Trump inevitable? I guess so because it happened. Uh, hopefully, it's not inevitable that he becomes president again. Anyway, the shuffle man is a kind of way of putting, if not a friendly face on it, then at least putting a funny face on it. You know, he's got a, a top hat. Most of the characters in that. On this record, are like superheroes or supervillains. The Shuffleman could have been one of the Flash's nemeses in, um, hmm. in a DC comic, you know. I Do songs know. come
0: to you similarly to how they have all these years, or has it changed? The, you know, the way you find a song or the way you get inspired to write a song. They come um, the same way, which is that they come without
1: warning. I often find that I'm actually making a song up in my head oh, wait a minute, this is what's happening. It's a bit like getting a phone call. Do I pick up? Do I stop and write this down? Do I sing it? I mean, I lose about 75% of the songs and some of them seem really great, but I just do, don't pick up. You know, I'm doing something else. One of the best ways of writing a song is to write another song and then, it's, you know, you sit there and sort of, exhale and put the pen down. And then what you really wanted to do, say, it comes through. It's like, just keep the channel open, really. But they're like cats. They've just got a mind of their own. They're not like dogs. They don't follow you everywhere. (laughs) The only thing that's changed is I've had another 10, 20, 30, 40 years of practice and sometimes sometimes you can write fake songs. I've got friends I talk to about this. They'll say, "Oh, well, I've, yeah, I've written some songs, but they're not, they're actually fake songs. They're not real ones. And um, they're technically there, but actually it doesn't have any life in it. It's sort of, they're like tadpoles with soul. They just come wriggling through the membrane. Bam, there you are, I mean, you've got one. They've kind of, they're really there whether you like them or not. Your job, my job anyway, is to sort of intercept them. Uh, I talked to Nick Lowe about this, and he said, "Oh yeah, I call it the man." He said, "I just stand there, and then sometimes the man comes along." You know, it's sort of like—I guess the man means it's a—it's a real song, not a—not a fake one,
0: right? Are you usually at an instrument when this is happening, or are you just like out in the garden, or taking a walk, or you know, doing something else?
1: Um, uh, if I'm at an instrument, I'm lucky. If I'm with a notebook. Then that's good because if I write down some words, it's quite likely that I can put a, I can find a melody. I might have to prune the words, change the meter, but they'll sort of. If I'm near a notebook, I can get it down. Like the feathery serpent, God. I haven't finished a song in in, in, in ages, um, and I wrote. I was in florida at the 30a songwriters festival and so i had a hotel room for several days and didn't have to go anywhere so i could sit there with my guitar and coffee in the notebook the perfect situation i just the whole thing appeared in about 15 minutes it was really fast you know taking the dictation getting the guitar singing it listening to it back twisting it a little bit
0: words come first or are they together with the music
1: it's great when you get them together with the music. Sometimes the music, sometimes the music comes, you just know you're going to get, the music comes and then you get some words with it. The words surf in on the music. Then then you've, you've got a good one, as it were. You know, it's like, oh my God, this is coming through absolutely. I really am just taking dictation, you know. If you get a tune and you don't get the words, oh, That's harder. Then it doesn't necessarily know what it's doing. I've actually just completed a record of instrumentals. It's the first time I've ever done it, Hmm. which we're going to put out in in about a month's time. I guess it's safe to announce this actually. Um, We're putting this out on Tiny Ghost. It's called Life After Infinity, and it's 11 instrumental pieces. And... um, I suppose they're what happens if I don't put words to music. Some of them are sort of fairly improvised, and some of them are more formally composed pieces. And that's what happens when you take the words away. I rather like it, because my words tend to... They can confuse people. (laughs) And, And I'm not saying that I don't want to confuse people either, so... You know, that might be my intention, to share my confusion with the world. Hey, have some of my chaos. Be my guest. Step this way.
0: Are the instrumentals uh, just played by you, or are are you with the band? Oh, no, it's
1: it's all me. No, it's all me overdubbed. Me and me and me. And a little bit of uh, the engineer, Charlie, playing bass and percussion. And Charlie helps. He makes it sound good. (laughs) But um, I think it's it's good. That's going to be out in a hopefully in a few weeks.
0: Huh? Well, um, we'll have to on, check that out.
1: Tiny ghosts.
0: You know, when I when I'd spoken with uh, Andy Partridge back in two thousand nine, he told me about this project he was working on with you. And then I got the four song EP Planet England. Oh, yeah. and I think that was what two thousand nineteen. So how did that finally oh. come out? And what was like that collaboration like?
1: it's really good but it was very intermittent we we did quite a lot I just go up to Swindon and sit in his front room or his back room and we would make stuff up and then we'd go into his shed and record it and Andy is a little back garden shed that has the sort of technological capability of Abbey Road it just has everything um andy is a brilliant engineer producer arranger you know he listening to that record it sounds as good as anything i've done so we just make the stuff up he's also one of the few people i can write songs with because we both think quite fast so but then there was a big gap i can't remember what happened and then i uh i kind of i left london and i i don't know i we just finished it off about four or five years ago. Then we started something else. Then the pandemic came down and he was an anti-vaxxer. And I think he'd already got COVID. And um, and then I did Shuffle Mania and everything. So I, I haven't really been around to do anything. We sort of, uh, we should get together at some point and do more of what we did. There's bits and pieces lying around on tape and on phones and things. And I think he's got a couple of bits of music that we did in his shed. It's just a matter of getting round to doing it, you know? And then I know he hasn't been very well and things. So we tend to be very in touch or not at all, you know, it's it's intermittent, but that way we never get, we never get sick of each other.
0: I didn't realize he was an anti-vaxxer. Well, I hope he's I hope he's healthy. That's you know.
1: well, he was he was last time I, I was in touch. And I I think this was around the time the vaccines were coming out. And I didn't want to be going up and being in a room with a, somebody who was an anti-vaxxer, you know, another old man like myself. Um, it just seemed too vulnerable, really. It's a bit different now.
0: I mean, long COVID is is the scary part because it's like one in six people who've been vaxxed still have some sort of neurological issues from COVID. So it's, that's, that's the, you know, that's the thing. It's just, there's just a little bit of a, you know, Russian roulette thing going on with this. And I feel like there's, but the the anti-vaxxers have made so much noise that, sort of the people who actually care about public health feel like, oh, we can't say anything again because if we say people should mask up again, they're going to say that we're fascists and they're going to say we're trying to control everything as opposed to, hey, everyone, let's not spread a deadly disease more than we have to.
1: I guess it depends how deadly it is or whether it's simply debilitating. Um, I'm sort of assuming that it's not going to this may be naive, but I'm assuming it's not going to kill us. But I don't know. Whereas three years ago, well, you know, two and a half years right. ago, it was. Our, our the Soft Boys bass player, Matthew Seligman, died right. COVID in, in like the second month of the pandemic. Um, and that, yeah, April of 2020. I looked yeah, that and that certainly brought brought it back to us. You know, to I mean, we were still in Nashville just to really shut down and stay out of the way for about a year i didn't get a cold because i was completely off out of touch with everybody and i was or i was masked you know so right now you and me the chances of, of even getting a getting a cold or flu were very very small and then um towards the end of second half of 21 i started touring again and i was sort of getting you know getting all kinds of colds and i I tested negative when I tested myself, but who knows whether I had a COVID at some other point, you know, I haven't had the the touch wood, you know, the fever or the loss of appetite or severe congestion or anything. So I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, the symptoms weren't really that bad. It's, it's like, the 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 fear really is like even the mild cases you can have sort of lingering stuff later but not good. yeah I, I just yeah. I had like a very low grade fever the first couple nights like a hundred or something and and then yeah, yeah I don't know I was I, and I was a little I was a little congested and my throat was sore and that was about yeah. it um, and I was grateful for you know, having built up the antibodies that that was the way my body reacted which wasn't that much because you know early on I mean I know people yeah. who are on people who are on ventilators so christ that collaboration it almost sounds like a robin hitchcock record produced by andy partridge in a way turn me on dead man i thought was funny that you know you had a song called that i don't know yeah i was curious if there was more to it than the four songs or not not that one no
1: there i mean we there were lots of ones that we started but those were the only ones that we actually put down that we worked on at any length he came down to london once and we, we made a lot of ideas up on a tape a cassette but we never actually acted on them and then we did the same in swindon in 2019 i don't know there's about six or seven of them but i don't really work on them by myself i just they're things that i do when i'm with him i mean that we do them together it's the best way of putting it i suppose
0: yeah Yeah, he said back in 2009, he said he referring to you. He said he just grabbed stuff from the air, which I find very stimulating because that's kind of how I tend to work as well. So to some extent, it was like dealing with a mirror reflection of myself creatively. Maybe this is why this thing is not happening at the time. Uh, Maybe we're two alike.
1: Well, he yeah, I think he then thought that I'd kind of abandoned the thing and lost interest. But I just uh, the thing is that I tour and I did tour a lot. Um, and so that's one of the big differences between us. We may be alike, but I play live as much as Andy doesn't. So I have a whole other existence.
0: Yeah. I mean, he around. hasn't toured since
1: 1982. So no, so it's like 40 years. So, um, and he's phobic about appearing in public. And I think he's phobic about traveling. I was quite lucky to get him to come down to London. He, he's apt to kind of, I mean, he's a sensitive, anxious man who is also in a way quite sort of caring um you know he's got two kids he's he's an only child I think he had he had quite a rough time of it when he was growing up and um I think he sort of takes on as much of the world as he can um and if I didn't tour I probably wouldn't I might not travel either you know I'm I'm just so used to it but if you start shutting down, it's quite hard to open up again. You get out of the habit of doing something and then time goes by. And it's really difficult to do it again. Um, and I just, you know, I got back into touring 18 months after the pandemic forced us all off the road. And, uh, and here I am, you know, touching what is the, it the wood. What is it
0: that you love so much about touring?
1: Uh, The simplicity of it, the focus for your anxieties, the fact that you are not at home, so you have no responsibilities other than getting on stage and playing the show and getting to the next show. If you get to spend two nights in the same hotel, that's fabulous. You can do some washing. You get to spend three nights somewhere if you like it. That's great. You can get get little rat runs going and you know have your favorite local cafes and see a few people if you know them you know um i i like the detachment of it and the simplicity of focus you're not just traveling around that would be delirium you know but you're traveling around with a focus the day the show. Gives you a focus. I mean, it's unfortunately it's the end of the day, so your big eject, injection of adrenaline is actually at eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening. So you're not going to get to sleep early. Um, so it's not so good if you have to get up at seven thirty the next morning. Those sort, those things are not kind and gentle and helpful, especially as you get older. No, um, no I like I like that that life's. Dial, and on the whole, I don't get that nervous before shows. And on the whole, audiences are good, pleased to see me. And as long as people don't talk, I don't mind. If they talk, I go ballistic and I become a not very nice person because I'm so outraged by <laughs> the unbearable rudeness and solipsism of the people who think that, you know, I don't know what, I think they think that that I think that they think nobody can hear them or something. I don't know what it is. I I shouldn't even mention it. I get so angry and I don't like having to be a bad cop, you know, at this time of life, but if nobody else is going to shut them up, I will. Um, and that's not good, but on the whole, people come along and listen. Yeah. If everybody talks, it's fine. It means that it's like a cabaret, and you're not really holding their, the audience's attention, and it's too bad. You become you're just a background music. But if everybody's listening really closely, but there's just a couple of people yakking, you no. know. I mean, you, you wouldn't do that at a classical concert.
0: <laughs> you no. wouldn't
1: do that at a folk concert. But for some reason, people I don't know what it is, and that that sort of <sighs> disregard both for me and and crucially, the other people I'm who've paid to be entertained by me actually strangles my mind. I short-circuit.
0: It, it makes no sense. Um, yeah, and I, almost I, any conflict I would have gotten into at a show is me trying to get someone to shut up so I can hear what's going on on stage.
1: Well, it's awful that it happens. If you're doing a show late at night and it's a bar, it's much more likely to happen. But again, the problem is, it's just when there's a couple, if you've got a bunch of people yakking, then, it, it, you know, you just have to hope that the listeners will come up the front and that those who want to have a conversation will go at the back by the bar. And, you know, it's more like pub rock. But it's it's just when you're playing solo, when you're playing acoustic, that's what really hurts. If you you know, if you're playing with a, rock band you're making a certain amount of noise anyway and fair play but um although i must say also if i go and see a band i really dislike it if people try and talk to me i can't focus on on the band and i can't you know while somebody's trying to have a conversation in my ear right it's just stupid and um again that that uh, I don't know, does not compute, mind overloads.
0: <laughs> I did want to ask you about how long you've been in Nashville and sort of how much being in that place has affected what you do.
1: Well, right now we're in London, but we're going to be back in Nashville. We are basically bicontinental. Um, I mean, I'm British, i Australian, but we, we're both kind of U.S. residents with green cards. And um, so... We'll be back in Nashville, should be based back there later this year for a while. Um, I don't think it's influenced the music I play at all, but what there is in Nashville is a terrific pool of musicians. So, you know, Brendan Benson is there, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings are there, Grant Lee Phillips is there, and there's all sorts of people, you know, like, Emmy Lou Harris is there and Lucinda Williams is there and, um, and, you know, people like Steve Winwood and Peter Frampton, I think, have got places there. I mean, all sorts of people are in Nashville. And then there's just terrific session players. So if you want to make a record that sounds like you're with a band you've had for five years, you can just find a few people... And you can make a really terrific, confident-sounding record. And I couldn't really do that in London. I just don't have the contacts. I don't really know that many. I've got some British muso friends, old soft boys and other folk, um, and they're going to join me next month at my um, Alexandra Palace gig. But... Nashville is just a great place to make records if I um you know as soon as I get over there, I just run across people and I think, oh boy, wow God I must as soon as I got a bit of money, I'll go back in the studio with these fellas you know just sort of left to my own devices if i had if I had that much if I could afford it, I would just go in once a month or something you know for two or three days with. John Radford and John Estes and Brendan Benson or whoever was around, you know, and just put down a collection of rocking tracks by me or by whoever else. I I just I can't afford it. I don't have money to to just constantly record with a band. What was the Uh, impetus
0: to move there in the first place? I met Emma.
1: Spent 10 years ago, and she had moved to Nashville from Sydney, and she was just making her own record there. And so I started, Emma and I, in our early days, hung out in Nashville quite a lot. And then we went to the Isle of Wight for a bit, and then we went to Sydney for a bit, and then we lived nowhere for a bit, and then we bought a house in East Nashville. And uh, we were there till, you know, well into the pandemic and fled over here for a whole variety of reasons, sort of political and medical, really. And then, um, but we're still really based there for work. So uh, it's an odd situation. I, I didn't think I'd wind up being Having that many feet in Nashville, but I do, and I'm, I'm, and I am very proud to be considered an honorary Nashville cat by the, <laughs> by the local musicians. You know that really means a lot to me. I feel like I've actually done something with my life. Ye gods! You know, I used to look at those Bob Dylan LPs when I was fourteen, you know, fifteen, recorded in Nashville. Wow! What is Nashville? Wow! I must go there. Ha! Huh. Bob Dylan, he records in Nashville and he knows the meaning of life and he's grown an ear-to-ear beard. I must do that too. Being an honorary Nashvillian and, and sort of being there at least half the time now does make me feel like I've done something with my life. You know, I'm not just some middle-class English schmo that <laughs> cracks wise on social media. You know, I've actually... I've, I've sort of proved myself. <laughs> I've proved myself to myself. which I suppose is really all you can ever hope to do, you know. That sort of so congratulations, Robin. Uh, I'm pleased with that one. <laughs> Thank you.
0: When you get to London are you like where can I get some hot chicken around here? I
1: mean, there's more Mexican food in Nashville. It's better for that. London's better for martinis. Um, Nashville is very good. Actually, uh, there's there's a surprisingly good amount of curry when curry is really the british national dish right um so actually you can get some good curries in nashville not a lot of great chinese food but there's not a lot of great chinese food where we are i don't know i mean we're just damn lucky to be able to be anywhere frankly but i am hmm. um, well when i say out nashville i also mean east nashville i don't really go over the bridge going into you know into town do you go
0: that much i've been there once was last not this past summer but the summer before was my first time there yeah. it was great i was I, I i didn't spend enough time there but uh you know it was it was cool to finally see it and to sort of see also sort of how human scaled everything was like you think of music row and like this icon. i was like yeah, it's a little strip of houses you know okay and uh you know it's just it's, just, it's a city and uh yeah you know, I love the African-American Music Museum, actually. That was sort of the, you know, in terms of the tourist stuff, that was the thing that kind of blew me away.
1: Oh, God, I haven't been there yet. Um, Actually, I haven't been to very many things there, actually, events. Um, I just tend to stay in, in East Nashville, which is where a lot of the sort of musos are.
0: We saw Squeeze at the Ryman just happened to be playing. Oh. It was like their first, it was like their first rescheduled show and the Delta variant was coming back around. So we were kind of petrified being in an th- 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 indoor concert. Cause it was like August of 2021, but oh gosh, it thick and it was nice to see squeeze at the Ryman. So, Oh, I mentioned they'd have been just right. Was it well attended? Yeah. It seemed to be. Yeah. They're very, they're a very well lubricated audience. Um, huh. They were like, we had to get up at some point because the people next to us are spilling their beer all over the benches. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. They probably don't regulate that too
1: much. You can bring drinks into the uh, into the Ryman. But um, no, that's a good place. I've seen Brian Ferry there. I've seen him. I've seen Ringo Starr there twice. <laughs> oh, nice. Compared to London or Chicago, it's, it's still a relatively small city, but it is expanding constantly. And all the locals complain about how much worse the traffic's gotten the way it's going to go, and, you know, it is getting bigger, but it's great not feeling surrounded by buildings in every direction. I am going out with a band. I won't have it in Chicago, but I will have it on the West Coast. Um, Kelly Stoltz is playing drums. Kurt Block from the Young Fresh Fellows is playing um, guitar, and and, uh, there's a guy called Bart davenport who's playing bass so and kelly's also opening the show so you know we'll be doing like a a dozen of my of my electric songs which will be interesting to see how that goes
0: and and you're going to be all acoustic here
1: in chicago i think so although kelly's going to be there i'll I'll come back in the fall but i don't know how many people i'll have with me I'm, i'm really not sure what i'm going to do in chicago it depends who's around and what machinery we've got. But um, there'll be some good stuff. There'll be there'll be Kelly Stoltz playing sitar and piano and me playing acoustic. And um, if there's anyone else, it'll be a bit noisier, you know.
0: That's all for episode 67 of Carol Pop. Thanks once again to Robin Hitchcock for sharing his intelligence, imagination, and unique perspective on the world. Go to RobinHitchcock.com. That's Robin with a Y to order your copy of Shuffle Mania and other eye-tickling merch. I bought the limited edition blue vinyl version of Shuffle Mania, and it looks and sounds fantastic. Hitchcock is touring the UK in late February and early March, before beginning a few weeks of dates in the US. He'll be in Seattle on March 17th, then Portland, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, St. Paul, good old Evanston, Illinois, Cleveland, New York, and Boston. Check his website for more information. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's also got a light bulb head. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast, and you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M A R K c-a-r-o also visit the carol pop website carolpop.com for posts about music movies food and also this carol pop podcast please share subscribe tell your friends and tune in again next week for another carol pop conversation thanks